from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. At those Olympics, he saw a version of the crawl. Um, the Europeans, a couple of the Europeans brought it, and a couple of the Europeans training in San Francisco brought it as well, who were being trained by an Australian coach out there. And it was a legless version, so you still had the overhand, but you drag your legs as opposed to actually kicking them or anything like that. It just that. seems crazy. Crazy, crazy, but it reduced the drag of his, you know, ridiculous uh, scissor kick underwater, so. Swimming in a straight line was very difficult if you weren't looking your head up the whole way, which a lot of them did. The British refused to believe that they were even true. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today, American swimming is a juggernaut. Superstars like Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky become household names as they nab Olympic gold medal after Olympic gold medal. But that wasn't always the case. Once, the British dominated swimming, and a host of European nations seemed like tougher competition than the U.S. It took a swimmer named Charles Daniels to change that, and a few climactic encounters in St. Louis. That's the subject of Michael Loyne's new book, The Watermen, the birth of American swimming and one young man's fight to capture Olympic gold. Michael Loyne is a sports attorney based in St. Louis, also chair of the St. Louis Olympic Committee. This is his first nonfiction book. It's actually really a great read, and he joins us today to talk about it. Michael Loyne, welcome. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I really enjoyed this book. And this is the story of American swimming, but at heart, it's really the story of Charles Daniels. And this is a young man. You might think he's kind of born on third base, you know, born into a privileged family. He had to overcome a few things. He did. I mean, it, it, the story is very riches to rags to redemption story. No, yeah. no doubt about it. His dad, you know, turned out to be kind of the Bernie Madoff of the day, which threw him and his mom, you know, out of society. And you know, back then, that was uh, that is not a good place to be if you're a child or a woman. I mean, you just did not have a lot of rights, uh, which is weird to think. That was only about 100 years ago. Right. I mean, just baffling. And what they had to do to claw back to get, you know, their sense of dignity back and to just get back into society was just a fascinating uh, research for myself and just just built up to just a great story. Yeah, part of what was so intriguing about this is it wasn't just that his dad was a financial fraudster that really set them back. It was just the horror of his parents being divorced. That right. this just put him out of this society that he'd been born into. Yeah, I mean, just incredible to think back then. But But when you think about it, the whole system was all men, right? Yeah. It was it was men did the newspapers, men did the articles, men were the judges, men were the attorneys. And so if you were a woman even wanting divorce, you were, uh, you know, you were scorned. It was your fault. Yeah. Which is horrible to think about. I mean, that's why there were only about 50 divorces, I think, in New York City alone in any given year. It just wasn't done. And the fact that she even had to go through that uh, was incredible. But then the fact that she they had to hide it initially because they didn't want to be outcast was, yeah. was intriguing in and of itself. It's such an interesting family story even before you get to the swimming. <laughs> right. Then you get to the swimming, things get even more interesting. So this guy, Charles Daniels, you get the sense nobody really thought this guy was much of an athlete. And he finds swimming at a point when basically nobody in America is doing it. How did he end up getting into swimming in the first place? You know, I, I think it stems just from 
from their concept of just anxi- what anxiety was and what depression was back then, which they really didn't know a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, it was very new. And if you had it, <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, what they gave you, you could get morphine or cocaine or all kind of crazy stuff, which is not something we do today, obviously. And then beyond that, it was if you were a man, it was go out and, and do manly things in the outdoors. If you're a woman, stay inside and rest in bed. It was just really deranged sense of concept. But he had anxiety. He suffered with it. So he wasn't good at sports. So his dad basically threw him in a swimming pool and said, swim. Wow. And he wasn't good at that either, <laughs> initially. And yet that changed. And and he's such an underdog in this book that he almost seems like nobody took him seriously as a swimmer, up to the point that he is setting a record. Like, he sets this record. He's in the handicap division. They've given him a later start. Right. That that's That's true. I mean, again... He was such a a workhorse about it, and he was so determined to be a good swimmer. But if you don't learn technique, it's very difficult to be good. And he didn't really have anybody to coach him. I mean, back then, the concept of coaching was still very foreign, which is strange to think. But amateurism was such that if you were paid to coach, you shouldn't be an amateur, right? So you had to just learn it yourself. Yeah. So it it really was something only elites could do. It was. It was very class restrictive. And it was done that intentionally. It came out of Britain where the gentlemen of leisure who didn't have to work, they wanted to maintain uh, their status as top athletes. So they really uh, made it hard for working class uh, people to compete on their level. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things in this book, and there were so many interesting things in this book, is when there would be drownings, um, that there would be a call that they should crack down on swimming. Swimming <laughs> needed to be banned. This was the only way to keep people safe. This wasn't something that people learned as kids, the way that it's, it's very common well, that, that people would learn this. That's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of funny that to stop drowning, we'll just ban people from going in the water as yeah. opposed to, let's teach them how to swim. But yeah. again, not a lot of people knew how to teach people how to swim. There weren't really pools, uh, year-round pools, indoor pools that people can get access to. So the only things they had here in America were outdoors, swimming facilities, which weren't even swimming facilities. There were more bathing facilities where people can bathe because they didn't have showers or baths and tenement houses. Yeah, and, and you described one of the places where Charles Daniels is, you know, he's setting records. He's a really good swimmer. The water was brown because they hadn't even figured out chlorine yet. Yes, that's, that's this exactly is alarming. Right. The only only way to clean a pool was to drain it and then fill it back up again, which wasn't an easy task. I mean, you know, again, plumbing was still not readily available. So it was very difficult. So a lot of times you're swimming in very cold water, very brown water. If it wasn't just in a lake or pond, that was who knows what the heck was in there. And they didn't have swimming lines. They didn't have lane gutters. They didn't even have uniform pool sizes. So it was very challenging for people back then. And so not just the physical environs where this took place. And again, we're talking just like approximately 100 years ago. They didn't really even know the basics of swimming. And you make clear in this book, they drew upon knowledge from indigenous people very far from Europe. This is how the Europeans started to figure out, okay, maybe we could move our body like this. (laughs) Were you surprised to learn just how complicated this was to get to the path of of learning how to swim? Shocked, shocked. I I mean, the whole concept, you know, a thousand years people didn't swim just because of the modesty standards of, you know, the church back then. And then when it finally did become a thing, it actually was born out of 
a pandemic, which I found very relevant and surprising. <laughs> just the cholera pandemic when they recreated baths to bathe people, and then people started swimming back and forth and racing. And then that, that was the first time. So this is the mid-1800s. And they're like, we have to invent a faster stroke beyond just the breaststroke. And that's when all these things started you know, people started trying new things. And the indigenous people in the South Pacific were really the ones who started the crawl. Mm. Um, and then it got developed by the Australians and later Charles Daniels that we know the freestyle stroke. Yeah. So Charles Daniels, when he starts winning these Olympic races, um, initially 1904 St. Louis, he's doing this with the trudgeon. Right. <laughs> which is which is a strange stroke. It's kind of it, it incorporates kind of the overhand of the freestyle, but your legs are still underwater doing like the scissors kick. So it wasn't very effective just because you'd get so much drag off your legs. And uh, yeah, but he still broke record doing this, which is kind of surprising. Yeah, so he breaks these records using this stroke, but almost even at the time that the Olympics are going on, this is sort of like the last gasp of the Trudgeon era. Right. So he wins a bunch of medals at this St. Louis Olympics. He does. He does. He wins three gold, a bronze, and a silver, which is St. Louis Olympics were the first time the gold medal ever appeared, which is kind of exciting. That's a good contribution for our city to the Olympics. Um, but he did do that. And then and at those Olympics, he saw a version of the crawl. Um, the Europeans, a couple of the Europeans brought it. And a couple of the Europeans training in San Francisco brought it as well, who were being trained by an Australian coach out there. And it was a legless version. So you still had the overhand, but you drag your legs as opposed to actually kicking them or anything like that. It just that. seems crazy. Crazy, crazy. But it reduced the drag of his, you know, ridiculous uh, scissor kick underwater. So. so as I'm reading this section about the 1904 Olympics where, you know, he does so well, he's winning all these medals. You're almost thinking of the guy who's sitting there in his horse and buggy and he sees the car coming up behind him. <laughs> you know, like he's almost already old news. And so after he wins all these medals at the 1904 St. Louis Olympics, you could have ended this book here. This would have been such an incomplete story. Yeah, it would have. It would have because the biggest challenge of them all was to beat the British. The British invented the sport. They had ruled it for 70 years. Nobody competed with them as far as their records. Nobody could come close. And to prove that the United States was formidable, we had to beat the British. And it was Charles Daniels who ultimately was able to do that. And the British didn't show up in St. Louis. They did not. They 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 were very elitist with their uh, sports uh, sports persona. I mean, they, they really created modern day sports. And anybody that was good had to compete over in Britain. If you wanted to be in the record books, you had to compete over in Britain. Mm -hmm. So the concept of the Olympics was just strange back then. They're like, well, we're the best in sports. If you want to gain international fame, you come here and compete. We're not going to the United States to compete. There's no point in that. Yeah, I think one of the, the really interesting things about this book is you're not just telling the story about swimming. You're also telling the story of just how truly amateur <laughs> these early Olympics were. Right. And I know you're on the St. Louis Olympic Committee here. <laughs> True. Um, but were you shocked as you dug into some of these details? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the Olympics just seems like such a no-brainer as far as a wonderful way to internationally get together and to compete. Uh, but it was funny that there was a time when it was just uh, looked at as kind of a boondoggle. Yeah. Um, and part of that's just international travel wasn't readily available. It was very expensive to do it. There were no – nothing set up to sponsor Olympians mm -hmm. back then. So, um, you know, again, but it took – 
the United States to put it on the radar here in St. Louis mm-hmm. that the Olympics finally started to get the attention of America. And then when Britain held them in 1908, then that was the biggest one going because they were the cradle of sport. So it, it made it official. It is interesting they go from saying we're not even going to show up right. to they host it. At that point, it's sort of cemented. It is. That, that's, that's exactly right. And then that kind of opened the door for the United States to really compete against the British and show us show them what we were made of, which was kind of a fun uh, fun part of the story because we were butting heads with them the entire times. There was some semantics and uh, some cheating going on and all kinds of stuff. So it was, and that's another thing was which was amazing to me that that was so flagrant at times. Yeah, I mean, cheating and sort of second guessing. Um, you know, the media was in on second guessing. Well, we don't really know if this person won or not. The whole right. thing just feels like so much more of a free for all. It, it, it very much was. It very much was. And it, you see, even when Charles Daniels was setting records here in America, the British refused to believe that they were even true. So he had to eventually go over there, compete against, you know, with their timekeepers, their judges, their rules. You know, that's not that's not a good perspective that you're going to win. <laughs> We're talking today to Michael Lloyd. Uh, he's a St. Louis author. This is his first nonfiction book. It's The Watermen, The Birth of American Swimming and One Young Man's Fight to Capture Olympic Gold. Going back to the early days of these Olympics, 1904 St. Louis, uh, 1906 they go to Athens, mm-hmm. then they go to London. Um, the swimming conditions there, even at the Olympics, were almost shocking to read about. You know, at one point, there's a conspiracy theory that that several of these swimmers who competed in St. Louis may have died because of the fact that, that they might have been in a contaminated pond doing this race. You, you end up disproving this here. Yeah, well, I, again, it, they did. It's true that uh, I think three of the water polo guys died. Uh, it seems remarkable that that many would, would perish. It, it would. The timeline doesn't add up because usually if they would have contracted some kind of bacteria here in the lake, they probably would have shown it within a month. And it didn't. Ha- they competed in September and they got sick in December and January. So I guess there's a slight chance, but most likely not. Most likely not. Most likely not. You also have these conditions as they're racing in Athens. They're out swimming in the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was terrifying to think of these conditions that that, that they're dealing with here. It's nothing like our Olympic pools today. No, no. The Athens Sea is very cold and it's it's very choppy. uh, And... As, as you read in the book, the 100-meter race turned into basically a 115-meter race because the buoys kept moving <laughs> just in the waves, uh, which is, you know, that's all the more difficult. And it's a straightaway. So uh, very different conditions. And then, again, it, in 1908, London built a 100-meter pool, which is twice the size of any pool we have today, the standard. So. so when did this all start to change, when things sort of got standardized and you could count records from one place to another? Uh, you know, it, it probably wasn't until uh, the 1920s when they started uh, getting pools more uniformed and lane lines started to appear. I mean, think about that. You didn't have a lane line. Yeah. You didn't have goggles. So swimming in a straight line was very difficult if you weren't looking your head up the whole way, which a lot of them did. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing, you end up coming away with so much respect from these pioneers. I mean, just night and day compared to what swimmers deal with today. And we have at the heart of it, this guy, Charles Daniels. Do you think without this guy, American swimming couldn't be where it is today? Uh, I Yeah, 100%. Uh, w- without a doubt. I mean, Duke Hanamoko, who came after him, 
uh, had a good crawl stroke just from his native Hawaii, mm-hmm. uh, and he was an amazing athlete. But Charles Daniels is really the one that, I mean, our U.S. Olympic Committee did not even want swimmers. They did not want to sponsor swimmers. Without Charles Daniels, they wouldn't have done that. Without that, Duke would not have come along. And um, Charles Daniels really, after the 1908 Olympics, spent the next three, four years just traveling the country. Didn't make any money doing this. He'd mm-hmm. show up at pools that got started. He just wanted to teach people a crawl stroke. He wanted to te- get people excited about swimming. And he really started the roots of our culture here. So he ended up popularizing, this is a real sport. This is something that, that you can be a hero from doing. He did. And you know, in, even in 1904, when he made national headlines, a lot of kids probably didn't even know competitive swimming was a sport mm. until he started making headlines. So, so reading his story is, is so remarkable. And... It made me wonder, you know, was there this late resurgence where late in his life people appreciated all he did? I got the sense from this book that 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 never happened, that you almost stumbled into this figure who'd kind of been lost to history a little bit. How did you first learn about Charles Daniels? You know, I did it when we were uh, working with the Olympic Committee here to get the Olympic rings at Washington University. And we started studying the history because we wanted to know what was true, what was not. And I wanted to uh, research a few Olympians who were here. And I came across this guy who won five medals, and one of them was the first gold medal by any American swimmer. So I thought that was interesting. Then I started digging deeper, and it, it found out he invented the freestyle stroke and really saw he started U.S. swimming. I'm just, this is incredible. I mean, how do we not know about him? But he was very humble. Hmm. And he didn't really want the spotlight, but he knew he was the face, and if swimming was going to survive, he had to be that face. So when he had a chance to walk away, he walked away and never looked back. They tried to get him back on the 1912 Olympic team. He said, no, you're good. You don't need me. I'm just going to distract it. And his granddaughters, who I got to meet, said the exact same thing. They said he was very humble, soft-spoken. He never talked about the Olympics unless they really needed him about it. And even then, he didn't say much. So you have to respect that. And yet, as someone writing a nonfiction book, boy, does that make your job complicated. (laughs) (laughs) It, It does. But because of their status in society at the time, Uh, The newspapers really tracked everything that was going on. And his mother kept such a great photo album of all his clippings that I was able to get by the granddaughters that that helped tell his story in in a great way. And then just researching the times, it was very revealing about what they were dealing with and coming up against. So Yeah, it felt like you did such extensive research for this. You kind of got around the weakness of not being able to get so much into his head with learning so much about his life and the lives of everyone around him that we start to understand how he might be thinking or feeling. How long did you work on this book? It was two years. It took two years of research and writing it, and then you do the edits and re- rewrites. But but two years to get the basic book in form. That seems pretty remarkable. Pretty good, especially during COVID. So one of the last things I got to research was going to the International Swimming Hall of Fame because they had all kinds of great archives, and they were closed all through COVID. And literally, it was a month before I had to turn in my final uh, edit version and to Random House and the guy called me Bruce Wigo he's a wonderful guy he said okay he goes I'm going to be there if you want to come and he's the president of the International Swimming Hall of Fame was he said I'll be there I'll show you all the stuff you can come here for a couple of days I said I'll be there Monday 
And that really fleshed out all the people around him. There were some unpublished manuscripts from swimmers around that time that really put a light on everything that was going on, the changes going on at the time. And so that was incredibly helpful. You got that at the very end. The very end. And I knew I had to get it. I'm like, I got to get this. But when you have a deadline. Right. So I was bugging them a lot. And Bruce Bruce saved it. So it was great. So wonderful story. Story of Charles Daniels. And at the end, even though he retired from swimming, he lives this very private life. Something you were able to learn that I found so touching is that he chose to settle by the sea. He moves to California. He keeps swimming. Yeah, he does. He he built a home, and I actually went to the home. The granddaughter showed me the home. He built it with his own hands. It's very modest. It's in a floodplain, which you'd never be allowed to build today. Um, there's a little river behind his house, and he, he, he always swam. And the, uh, you know, the, the ending of the book, not to give it away, but the last little blurb is that in his 80s, they were clearing all the people out of that area, um, evacuating them from a flood that was coming in, and he refused to go. He said, look, if I can't, if I can't swim out of this, the water can take me. <laughs> that is just an amazing ending. I loved this so much when I read it. It's just wonderful this has worked out where this is the ending of our conversation. <laughs> Michael Lloyd, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was great to be here. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.